how to start well you know it's just writing i mean here's something important to remember about dialogue every word matters no it doesn't they're vital i want to go to this place that i think it needs to go to the only thing that counts is what you see on the screen i will write like four or five six hours a day and it will be a voice made of ink and rage okay i'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question Welcome to the show. This week, I sat down with Melanie Figg. She's been writing poetry since college. Her poems, essays, and reviews have been published in more than 70 print and online literary journals. Her poetry chapbook, Hurry Love, was published in Standard and Fine Art Editions, and her full-length collection of poems, Trace, won the Many Voices Project competition, and Kirkus Reviews not only gave it a prestigious Kirkus Star Review, but also named it one of the best indie books of 2020. I really enjoyed this interview. I am for some of you who know or reading my emails, which you can find over at brockswinson.com, I've been talking a little bit about kind of starting my own coaching program. This is something I'm, I'm leaning into. So I am going to talk to a few more coaches in the next few weeks and really just kind of learn their secrets all I can. But uh, this one kind of stood out because I really love the way she finds students and the way that she does more than just talk about writing with them. Speaking of what stood out, I've got my podcast producer, Marion, here. What kind of stood out about this interview to you? She talked about how like, she determines who she works with. And I think you and I have actually talked about this, about how sometimes when you're working as a freelancer, you and you have like meetings with people you are thinking of working with you sometimes like get this like gut feeling that tells you this is not going to be a good fit yeah. and she mentions that she has like a first meeting with like people who who she's thinking of working with and sometimes she just knows pretty quickly if it's a fit or not so yeah definitely that this it's really true when you start figuring out really quickly as working as a freelancer. Like every time I ignore that gut feeling that tells me this is not going to be a fit, I just end up in a bad position. Yeah, and it's like you can try to overthink it all you want. So in the in the freelancer course that we came out with recently, my Upwork Unfair Advantage actually was like hiring you in the process of filming that. And I think I went through 50 applicants and I had like two or three narrowed down and then you applied and you just like stood out for something that was like intangible. And we talk a little bit more about that in the course, but I've really noticed that with like collaborations and partnerships, I mean, they're it is like a unique thing that's like really hard to describe, but I love the way Melanie kind of talks about that. So um, check out this interview, check out my other stuff we're doing over at brockswinston.com. We've got lots of fun courses coming out. We've got our new uh, mentorship kind of in the works. A few people have joined our race. So we're looking forward to building that community. All that's over at brockswinston.com. And here's my call with Melanie Fig, a poet, mentor, and writing coach. You know, I. I always wrote stories as a kid. Like I remember this one about the cranberries in the refrigerator hatching an escape plan. And my mother thought it was cute and it was always good to get her attention and appreciation. And I wrote poetry in college and high school, terrible poetry in high school, right? Like Led Zeppelin ripoffs and <laughs> terrible angsty stuff. And then um, I had a wonderful teacher in college who introduced me to poetry. So that's one arm of the origin. And then I think the other is that my father was a minister. So like the spoken word was sort of a weekly experience for me. And he was a pretty good um, 
he wrote pretty good homilies and and he had a background in music so there was a lot of good music at church and i think that the spoken word and the lyricism and musicality of of the spoken word um i got quite early probably earlier than even writing hmm. and so I think song's really important to my writing. I feel like I have a pretty good ear for that. And so I think probably if I gave you the right answer, the real answer, it would be sitting in those pews in church and staring out the windows and zoning out and just having sort of spoken word wash over me. You probably saw, like, so my grandmother writes religious poetry. My grandfather, my grandfather like taught one of the Sunday school classes. So in addition to seeing it happen, you probably saw a lot of the studying and work that went into it in the home too. Did that kind of influence you at all to build a work ethic within creativity? Huh. I guess so. Now that you mention it, I mean, my father was in the study a lot, but he would often be writing on these, you know, legal yellow pads. So maybe I think that, hmm. You know, my I come from a family of artists. So my brother is a musical conductor and um, teaches graduate music. And my sister is a visual artist. So the arts were just really promoted as sort of what you did in my family, too. Certainly not my grandparents. You know, they were farmers and very working class people. Um, but my immediate family was sort of full of a lot of artists. It's like more acceptable with each generation or more possible probably as well, too. You know, what, yes, so what did you kind of, yeah. Did you go into school for it or how did you kind of start to pursue it more? Yeah, well, in college, I um, I started um, writing a lot and I met um, a couple people who were also writers. So then I had sort of my first kind of community there and uh, majored in, you know, got a B.A. and poetry or I made my own major or something like that creative writing and then um, took a couple years off and wrote grants and hung out and worked at a coffee shop and then I went and got an MFA probably six or seven years after my bachelor's which was that was sort of uncommon most people were going right from their BA to an MFA mm -hmm. um, and so then I got an MFA and started teaching in literary art centers more than academia I didn't didn't want to go into academia. I didn't particularly like that. I hadn't had a great experience with a few people there. So wanted to more work with people in the community. And I'd had really great experiences at the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis with a couple teachers who were really pretty pivotal for me. So, um, and I've enjoyed that a lot where, you know, it's not about grades. It's really people in the classes who are trying to learn writing or be better writers. What do you so, think that difference was? Was it uh, more of an interest in your work? Was it more flexibility in what they were trying to accomplish with you? What do you think? What what made some better than others? Teachers, you mean? Yeah, or or mentors or teachers? Yeah. I think people who who get your work, you know, whatever that is, and get what you're trying to do, you know, and not sort of just pontificate or tell you what to do or. Um, you know, a lot of, and it shows up in workshops too, right? A lot of feedback is actually just how to turn your thing into something they'd write, which isn't helpful at all, right? It's like, right. well, then go do that, you know? And I, I guess really a generosity of spirit, you know, very deep love of the craft and 
willingness to share information instead of hoard information, mm. you know? So that was, that's been important. And that's what I try to give to my students and, and people who I work with is, you know, how do we get this to be the most pure thing that you want that to be? Yeah. You know, whatever that is. I like that a lot. You're expanding on what they're already doing as opposed to trying to shift them over. So your website is listed as a writer, teacher, and certified coach. How do you balance those things? What does that look like in a given year? How do you kind of shift between these many fields of writing? Well, the coaching started about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And, you know, again, I don't teach in academia. And now it's all online since COVID, really. A lot of that hasn't moved back to in person. But the coaching, I have certain days where I work with clients one-on-one. It's all on the phone. So I can sort of focus more. I, I didn't do ever do Zoom, which I'm really glad about. And there was a period where people were pretty Zoomed out. And maybe we're still there, but, you know, a lot of the, most of the classes I teach are either in the evening or on the weekends. So, you know, it's pretty sporadic. Some weeks, some periods of the year, some months I'm teaching three or four nights a week or three or four times in a week. And, and the coaching kind of fills in around that. And then the classes are, I teach through a variety of classes now since COVID, I kind of expanded. I don't know. It's sort of a toggled mix of I guess a lot of people who are self-employed sort of patch stuff together. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm really used to that too, is, is artists and teaching artists and working artists sort of patching stuff together. You know, my sister teaches at, used to teach at a couple different colleges and you sort of drive around and, and toggle stuff together. And that seemed like a pretty, pretty normal, pretty familiar way to build a career was that kind of patchwork approach. For a long time, I had like a part-time W-2 job or I worked three-quarter time. I always talked down my bosses to four-day work weeks. Mm. So for people who are, you know, in a regular nine-to-five job, you know, talk them down to one day off a week. It was always a Wednesday for me or in the middle of the week because if I tended to do Friday or Monday, it would just suck up and become the weekend. And so if it was midweek, it felt more like a job. And so I think that's how I really started like finding writing time starting to teach was um, working four day work weeks. And I think that's more common now. And so I think it's a really good solution for people who want to have space for something that matters for them, Mm. you know, because you come home from work and you're fried or it's hard to sort of write when you have kids. And a lot of times when I work with my clients, it's around how to find some space in their lives for writing because it should be sustainable. It's got to fit their schedule in their situation, you know, maybe that changes over time, but I think a lot of people wait for this ideal day or this ideal situation. It's like, you got three kids and you work full time. That's not happening for 15 years. So what are you going to do till then? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be an hour a day, you know, 20 minutes a day or whatever. That ends up to be a lot of writing time in the course of the week, you know? I wrote this book last year and there was a chapter called Defend Your Time. And that was kind of the point. I really like what you said about not Mondays and Fridays, but Wednesdays, it's more completely dedicated to this, this pursuit you're you're kind of going after. Well, tell me about, um, how do you find students now? Is it referrals? Like how did that kind of start to come to be? My students still come through the places where I teach. So I use those places as sort of finding new, new folks that I don't know. And then I build, I've built my mailing list for, you know, I guess the past 10, 12 years since I've lived here. And so some classes I teach just privately on my own 
you know, you make the most money, you can kind of like some of them are invite only. So I'm working with the students I really like or who are at a, like a more advanced level. So I think that most of them are coming through those areas. And then a lot of people find me just through Google searches. So my SEO must rock somehow because a lot of people find me um, Googling, which is always surprising. And then I offer like a free, you know, 30 minute conversation for coaching clients if they want to talk to me. Cause I just think, you know, you want to figure out if someone's a good fit for you. And so that's how people sign up for those. And that's how they find me. And, and my coaching clients tend to be a lot more cold calls, I guess, if you'd say, than people I already know. Like what you said, when I, so I do freelance work and I always try and like, is it a fit? And I think what you're saying, what I mean by that, it's not just, do I fit this role, but does this role fit me? Like what I, the same thing is like those people, it looks like you've got filtering in place just on the website, uh, coaching for serious writers. Like you're being very specific. You don't want to talk to people who aren't dedicated to the craft. What other things do you look for in those free calls where you're trying to just determine if it makes sense for you? Well, like if they, if we just sort of get along, if there's a rapport there, that's important. I think that tells a lot. If they're interested in sort of, um, you know, what level of commitment they have, you know, not everyone I work with, I would say the majority of them, they're serious about their projects, but a lot of them have never, they're not writers in the sense they haven't gone to school for that. They don't, maybe some haven't even taken any classes, but they want to write a novel. So I sort of assess sort of what level of commitment there they have with a book, maybe how far it is gone or how far along they are. You can kind of tell pretty quick if someone's not into you, <laughs> you know, it's a little <laughs> bit like a blind date, right? You know, they're sort of not picking up what you're putting down and they're a little like, there's a lot of dead pauses. And I think I, this isn't probably going to be a match, you know, but sometimes, you know, it's right away. It's immediate that you get along and there's some sort of connection. And also, you know, a lot of people have really cool projects, you know, and a lot of people are doing things for their family. So they're, they, you know, they found all their mother's letters that right. she wrote to their father in the war or, you know, writing a, you know, I've got a thing called the writing hive and one of the students there just wrote a bunch of stories about her childhood for her grandson, mm. you know, and gave it to him when he graduated high school or something. And that's really meaningful for the whole family, yeah. you know, so people have different projects. It's a pretty big range. So I'm always curious to hear how people are doing and, and building something and, and what their approach is. Did you always have that in place? Cause it can seem like if you were starting a new, you know, coaching program, obviously you want or need clients, you know, there, there is always that part of things there. Were you always able to, you know, only filter to the ones who make the most sense? Did you ever try to work with someone and they're just like, it just kept kind of kicking back at you? Oh, sure. You know, my coaching business isn't as full as I'd like it to be. But I think that recent copy, that was actually a copy I worked on in COVID with somebody. And it was sort of like, who's your ideal client? And sort yeah. of like, that is my, my ideal clients are people who've done a lot of writing. You know, I have plenty of, I guess my favorite clients are people who are really committed to the craft and maybe have an MFA or maybe you're just serious writers. But 
there is this thing. It's a weird balance. You do sort of take clients or students or whatever, and and some of them don't work out, and that's okay. You know, I don't put people on a retainer. You know, some coaches do that. I don't do that. And you know, you got to figure out what's working for people. But I guess there's also this piece of like people tell me this. I'm not a great like person around this, but you know, like trust the universe and like the right people will show up, and you know, like that. <laughs> like yeah. I'd like to say I'm a huge person about abundance, but you know, both my parents were depression era kids. So I, you know, I wash my Ziploc bags and stuff, <laughs> you know, but I do think the right people find you, you know, and you know, one client I've had for six or seven years, she's definitely like the anomaly, but you know, I've seen her through her second novel and she used to be terrified of showing her work in public. And now she collaborates with other artists and has a website and is talking to agents. So she sort of has spanned I mean, that's why I'm a coach is I really get a lot of value and it's just personally satisfying to see people shift and grow over time, whether that's their specific project and their writing gets better or whether their writing life gets better. You know, they go to open mics or they go to a conference or they put themselves out there and they pitch at, you know, a conference or, or just get more comfortable sharing their work. And so that's you know, that's what's really satisfying for me as a coach and a teacher is is watching people expand their work and their writing lives that way. You see it more. So some of the coaches I've talked to, I mean, it it, it does seem like, and I've done like a mini version. I did this course and I, I did it for free and a thousand people signed up to watch this course. And I worked with like 10 or 15 people individually and it felt very therapeutic. Like, I don't want to, you know, you hate phrases like self-help and life coach sometimes, but mm -hmm. it does feel like some of that. Um, yeah. Is that when you're approaching some of those realms, do you find it that you need to be vulnerable for them to be vulnerable? Or, I mean, really the goal is to get the best out of them. So what are some of your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know I hate the term life coach too. And it's a weird industry because it's, anyone can put up their shingle and say they're a coach, right? So I went to a very, you know, rigorous program that had a lot of a strong reputation. And I tend to call myself more like a creativity coach. But you know, Brock, I mean, your writing is your life. So if you procrastinate in your writing life, I know you procrastinate in other areas of your life, you know, if you shit all over yourself when you're writing, I'm sure you treat yourself that way in other areas of your life. So talking about one area of life often will shift to other, other areas, right? Mm -hmm. And that I think is the juiciest part is sometimes it's so hard with someone's writing life. They're, they hold it with such a tight fist that we can't really get in there to pull apart the strands. And so I'll shift gears and say, okay, where else do you procrastinate? She's like, oh my God, I have the craft room in my basement that looks like, you know, a hellhole. And I said, let's deal with that. Yeah. Like go organize that, go create a space where that could be inviting for you. And so in the process of tackling that two weeks later, she calls me up and tells me, oh, I've been writing every day, mm. you know, because I took a bunch of shit to the goodwill from the basement, you know, and that's like, oh, awesome. We're onto something here, you know? And I don't know that I share specific stuff about my life, but certainly I know where people are coming from who are overwhelmed or, you know, grappling with very personal material that takes a very different approach, you know, 
a lot of my clients are memoir writers and that gets pretty difficult writing about something that feels very charged and still very hot, mm. you know? So coming up with strategies where people are managing that material a little, a little bit better, finding ways to kind of continue to dip in and just mostly it's people are just too hard on themselves. Mm. I mean, it's really harsh. Sometimes it just, it just crushes me to hear, you know, what they say to themselves. And I do new clients fill out this like questionnaire, which can be four pages or it's been as high as 12 pages when I get a big talker. But like, what do you say to yourself? Like, let's turn the inner critic on loudspeaker so that I kind of know what we're dealing with. Like, where are the, where are the hard spots, you know, with that voice? Mm. And, um, you know, people talk to themselves. They wouldn't talk to a dog that way, you know? And listening to those voices and being mindful of them and shifting them is really important work, you know, and probably the, the heart of it in terms of what's going to really shift is how we talk to ourselves or talk to ourselves about rejection or, or failure. And it might not go away, but it doesn't have to like hijack the whole journey. So there's a fair amount of mindfulness. You know, I, I'm not like a, meditation guru or anything, but just being mindful of how we talk to ourselves or what's coming up. You know, the blank page is a stressor for people and they're going to start vacuuming or they're going to start whatever, you know, and it's to avoid whatever's coming up on the page Mm -hmm. or not, you know, which is usually some sort of voice. And so we try to look at, you know, get very clear about what are those voices and then more and more, I've started to discover that it's actually a, just a craft issue. Like mm. you just literally don't know what to do next. I don't know how to write dialogue or I don't know how to organize this story or I don't know how to make a flashback happen or I don't know how to dig deeper into this topic so my poem isn't superficial. Mm. And so then they say I'm procrastinating or then they start doing the laundry. But if we can find where it's a specific craft issue, then it's not personal and it's easier to fix. And it's not this thing of like, there's something wrong with me or why am I doing this? You know, which clicks in pretty quickly and pretty automatic for people. And so you've got your own experience. You've got some filtering in in place. You've got specific things you prefer to coach on. Was there any point in your early days where you felt overwhelmed, like being a coach? Like, are you the person to give advice? Any thoughts about that and and, kind of coping with that? I still feel like I'm sort of in the early days. I don't feel like I've sort of gotten the business where it's at. But probably I think that's kind of eased up a little bit. You know, I think, you know, I coach on process. I don't coach on content sometimes. I'm an editor, so I I can edit people's work and, and edit for content. But, you know, whether you're writing a memoir or not, like I've never written a novel, right? And I coach a lot of novelists because of, it's more about the process of writing and how to manage a big project. Yeah. You know, breaking down overwhelm and dealing with steps. And, you know, so I read a lot of what other writers are doing and what the process is. And I guess I don't have that inner critic that tells me that. So that's a good, that's a good, <laughs> that's good <laughs> news, Brock. <laughs> I'm sure there's, there's others creeping around in there, but I, I think, most people just need someone rooting for them. And a lot of my clients don't talk to other people about writing. Yeah. You know, they, they, it's quiet. Some people haven't even told their people in their house that they're writing a book. 
And that's a level of, you know, it's like, is that a secret or is that just private? And so a lot of times I'll focus on like, let's expand that, right? So sometimes my clients always have a little bit of homework and sometimes I'll give them a challenge of like, tell three people this week that you're writing a novel, Mm. which usually, you know, makes people have a small like gulp, but I don't care who it is. So he told of some coffee barista and he told a colleague and, you know, to start opening that up it's it's private but it's not a secret or if there's some weird shame or embarrassment around that that just makes it very hard to write Mm. it's not a conducive landscape for creativity it also seems to like make it more real i know a lot of the filmmakers i talk to if i talk to a novice screenwriter they've never made anything it doesn't feel like anything you're just trying to get it done if you talk Mm -hmm. to someone else you're like we're filming in March. I'm talking to the, like, there's all these things that are make your project more real than just you in the room and the paper, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I like working with other artists. So I've worked with screenwriters and directors and a lot of visual artists and also academics and lawyers, you know, just trying to publish a lot of people in academia, just trying to publish or get in law reviews. But I think that other artists it is really different. A lot of people in theater, it's much more collaborative and there's a lot of different people involved with your work, mm-hmm. you know, and managing that sometimes plus writing can be hard for people. But I guess I'm just, I'm mostly interested in creative people. I think they're more interesting to talk to. <laughs> yeah. So I, my ideal client is just someone who's creative and, and is, you know, identifies as an artist probably. Right. We're almost out of time. People can find out more about you at MelanieFig.net. I see a lot of things here, poetry review, women's retreats, one-on-one, writing hives, anything else you want to say about your work or what might make your coaching be different or where to find books or anything like that? Well, they can find my book Trace on the website and they've got a special order it because the world of independent publishers is sort of a mess. But I guess what makes me unique or is that I'm, I don't know, I'm an artist. I get the process. I care about where, where people are at. I feel Okay, I'm a good match of, I'm like intuitive and like logistical nerdy, right? So I'm not like an airhead and I'm not like a worker bee that's only going to talk to you about the nuts and bolts and that's important, right? But I see the whole you. I want to see the whole you and I want you to see the whole you Mm. because the reader wants all of that, you know, or the viewer of the film, they want all of that. And if we can't hold all of that, how are we going to give that away? So I'm just rooting for all of you to show up in your work, just rooting for all of you, because that makes your work more interesting and more rich and people will connect to it. And that's most important. You know, if you write, you write alone. When there's readers, there's community. And that's when your art kind of becomes itself, when there's an audience. So we want that. You know, we want it out of the drawer and into some sort of publication so people can read it and enjoy it and connect. And in that moment, I think when you, when your work finds an audience, like it becomes complete, Hmm. if that makes sense. That's what I'm shooting for. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. 
learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach and learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.